This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. I guess I can take off this mask and maybe... (laughs) I don't know about that. Um, Okay, there is one who is in the order of Melchizedek, and we're talking about him today. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it's good to be here with everybody. Um, As uh, Tim has said and everybody has said, we've we've kind of been going through the story of God. And so the last couple of Sundays have been uh, a little bit, I think I'm still getting a little bit of uh, reverberation, but... Eric's on it and working on it, so I'll just keep talking. Um, but yeah, we've, it's been a little bit uh, different Sundays uh, for the past couple of Sundays. Rather than just uh, somebody preaching, we've been reading a story and having some discussion, and that's been really good. Um, we have flown through the whole story of Scripture in two weeks, uh, which is a crazy feat. Um, and so obviously we can dig in and dive in and go in a lot more detail, but um, it's been really fun. It's, uh, I like how... Uh, we coined it story time with Tim. <laughs> and so that's, yeah, it's, we had a good time going through story time with Tim. Um, and yeah, so today we're kind of uh, jumping into um, kind of taking a, a deeper look or at one overarching purpose that we see within God's story. And so, and you can see it as you pay attention to God's story, you can see uh, God's kind of overarching purpose to bring his people back to himself uh, to then spread his good, right, and beautiful glory uh, throughout all of creation. And so we've talked a lot about that through the story. Um, but today we want to we stop in on a few, a few key points throughout Scripture where we see God's purpose or God's mission kind of uh, developing, taking shape, and gaining clarity throughout the story. Um, and so we want to uh, really hone in on uh, just what God's purpose is. Um, and so before we jump in, though, uh, let's pray because we need the Spirit's work to, to teach our hearts this morning. Father, we're thankful for you um, that we are able to come here and gather and to sing of your greatness and to sing of your goodness and your rightness and your beauty. Um, I pray that you would meet us here and that you would be with us um, I pray that you would send your spirit to teach our hearts as we uh, continue to navigate through uh, just large sections of of your story. And I pray that you would make your purpose, your mission throughout all of scripture clear to us. Um, 
And I pray that you would help us to gain an understanding of, of where we are within that. And um, ultimately, we see that uh, at, the, at the pinnacle of your purpose is your glory because you are the only one who's good. You're the only one who is right, and you're the only one who's beautiful. And so I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning. Um, and uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, cool. So um, just a couple of uh, notes before we jump in. Um, as we, as we do look at, uh, as we see God's kind of, I'm gonna call it a missional thread that stretches throughout all of scripture, um, we see that uh, this, this thread, it's, it's something that is uh, continual, it's consistent, it doesn't change, and it's unstoppable. And so as we go, uh, there were key points in the story where, where we stopped and it was, they were really discouraging, heavy points points where God's people are in exile, and it seems like God's promises have failed. And so uh, points where we're asking, has God's mission failed? Has it ceased to exist? But as we, as we look through the, the grand narrative of scripture, we see that a clear and resounding no, God's mission has not failed. And so um, we're gonna kind of uh, progress continually through scripture as we see uh, God's mission really is, is kind of a crescendo. It starts quietly. It starts, um, doesn't really have a ton of clarity, but then at, at the next great promise of God, we see, we see more clarity into, into his mission. And then at the next big key point, we see that, that promise develop and grow, but it's still the same. And so we just get more clarity. It, it crescendos as it, as it goes throughout scripture. Um, then another thing, um, the mission of God is a topic that we could spend weeks on. And so there's no way that we can be anywhere near comprehensive this morning. Um, and so we're gonna touch on a few key points, like we've said, um, and we're really gonna fly through a lot of scripture. And so um, I do have all the verses up on the, on the slide, um, but I thought that I would be good and get ahead and do these ahead of time. And I wanted to incorporate a graphic into some of the slides, and so I did PowerPoint rather than ProPresenter. And the text is tiny. So if you have glasses, uh, get them out. We moved the screens up as close to you as we could. <laughs> um, but I'm gonna be reading the text either way. Um, and we're gonna make these available online afterwards as well so you can review these and spend more time in the text because we're really gonna be going pretty quickly through them uh, today because ultimately all of these, these texts that we're gonna be in are really, uh, they're huge texts. And so um, it's it's honestly kind of painful to have to fly through them so quick, but that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, and the goal is hopefully we can see um, one continual trend of God's mission throughout all of scripture. And we see that it's consistent, that's the same, that it's unchangeable, and it's unstoppable. Um, and so our first stop um, is going to be in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and I have the clicker today. Um, oh yeah, so I didn't talk about this. So as we go throughout uh, God's mission, uh, and, and as we, at each stop, we kind of see three uh, primary elements of God's mission as we go. Um, and so we see that first off, uh, we see God's glory in his mission. Um, and so God is the only thing that is good. Um, in in uh, the gospels, uh, teachers come up to Jesus and they say, good teacher. 
And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Who's good? No one is good but God alone. And he's right. God is the only one who is good. And so if God's mission is gonna be good, God's mission has to have God's glory. And so we also see um, an integral element of God's mission is God's presence with his people. And so we're gonna see this at every stop. We're gonna see God's presence. And another element that we're gonna see is God's reach. Reach. (laughs) Um, We're gonna see that uh, God's mission doesn't stop at his people. It goes beyond his people. It goes to the ends of the world. Um, And that's not just a New Testament idea. That's present from the very beginnings of God's promise and his mission. Um, So yeah, so that takes us to our first stop. Um, which is in Genesis 12, um, one to three. And I'm gonna be doing a lot of jumping. And so there's your small text. (laughs) And so if you can see that, um, we wanna kind of put this verse into some context. And uh, if if you remember back to our story, to the very beginning, we see God created everything that was good. It was very good. And then, ultimately his people were the exclamation point of that creation. And the first commandment that God gave his people was to go and fill the earth, to care for it and to work it. And that entailed spreading God's good, right, and beautiful image throughout all the ends of creation. And so that is repeated to Noah chapters and chapters later. But then um, one, another key thing is that, that goodness in the garden, the very goodness of God's creation, it didn't last long. So you remember the serpent in the story. The serpent came and he deceived uh, Adam and Eve, the first uh, created people, and they rebelled against God's rule and reign. And so um, a couple chapters later in Genesis 11, we see what that looks like. And we see uh, this group of people who are building a city. And in Genesis 11:4, we see that uh, we see kind of uh, their motive behind that. They say, come. Let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make for ourselves, or let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so do you hear the discrepancy between God's initial command and what's going on here? We see right here the effects and the work of the serpent. We see the curse at work. We see that God, that people that were made into the image of God, created to fill the earth and created to spread God's good, right, and beautiful image. Say, let us make a name for ourselves, not God. And let us build a city lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And so um, these people right here are actively rebelling against God's initial stated mission, his purpose in creation. And so, long story short, that city does not work out. Um, it uh, ceases to exist. Uh, but then, in the next chapter, um, God comes to a different man, uh, Abram, uh, later called Abraham. Um, and he approaches Abram, and here's what he says in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And so immediately, do you hear the difference here between uh, what God says to Abraham and what, I'm sorry, Abram at this point. I can't say <laughs> Abram. <laughs> I have to say Abraham. Um, but yeah, do you hear the differences between what God says to Abram and what the people wanted to establish in their city? They wanted to make a name for themselves. But God says he will make a great name for Abram. And so we see God's glory in that he's the one who can enact greatness. No one else can enact greatness. Um, and so uh, then kind of moving on to God's presence, um, while this promise right here is the most vague, we do see that, that God is gonna bless Abram. And right now we know that that blessing entails that he's gonna make of him, A, a great nation, and also he's gonna make his name great. But other than that, we don't know a lot about what this blessing means. And so it has, it's, hasn't taken a lot of shape yet. And so, but we do know is that God is the one who enacts greatness because he is the one who's glorious and he's gonna bestow some favor. He's gonna extend his favor to Abram. And then um, we go on and we immediately see God's reach here. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this blessing that God bestows on Abraham, it doesn't stop with him. It flows over into all the families of the earth. And the really cool part here um, is that this language, this all the families of the earth, um, in the past we've kind of talked about like biblical hyperlinks. You know, if you go online and you see a hyperlink and you click it, it takes you to that website. Well, there's a hyperlink, like a biblical ancient hyperlink right here. This all the families of the earth, it, it jumps us right back to where uh, those people who were rebelling against God, who were building the city, making a name for themselves, lest they be scattered over the face of the earth. And so this blessing reaches all the families of the earth, especially those who are actively rebelling against his rule and reign. And so, um, yeah, so that's the first kind of key point that, that we see God's mission come into a little bit of, of clarity. If, we, uh, if we're sitting down to listen to a, a classical piece by an orchestra or a band, this is where we start to hear the pattern that's gonna carry us through for the rest of the song. And so um, right now, it's not, we don't have a lot of clarity in, into it. Uh, we don't know exactly what this blessing means, uh, but we do know that God is gonna bestow a blessing on Abram. And so uh, when we keep going through the story, uh, we come to another key text in Exodus 19. Um, and so to put this in context, um, so God had promised that he would make, Abram, make of Abram a great nation, and he had fulfilled that promise. By, by now, Abram's nation is Israel. And so um, there was a, the thing is, there was a famine in the land um, where Israel lived, and so they moved to Egypt where the famine uh, wasn't, where they had plenty of reserves to keep them alive. And so they're in Egypt, and they kept growing and growing and growing. They became a greater and greater nation, just like God had promised. And so they, they became so great that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, uh, was concerned about them. And so uh, what does any uh, smart king do when there's a people that he's concerned about? He enslaves them. And so uh, Israel uh, was in slavery for 400 years in Egypt under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And um, before we come to our text today, 
Um, God, he shows his power uh, by redeeming Israel out of Egypt, uh, by wrestling him from the hand of Pharaoh, and not only of Pharaoh, but of the entire pantheon of Egyptian gods. We see him confronting every god and there being no contest as uh, God ultimately brings them out of Egypt. Then uh, as they're coming out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea and he splits the waters and they walk on dry ground between two walls of water. And uh, later we see that Paul calls, calls this the Israel's baptism into Moses. And so this is Israel's baptism right here at the Red Sea as they walk through the waters. Um, and then they wander in the wilderness until they come to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And it's here where they're gonna hear from God. And so in our text right now that we're gonna uh, reference Exodus 19, one to four, um, at this point, Moses is speaking to them. Um, but uh, in, in a bit, God is gonna speak to them directly. But uh, what Moses says, what God says to Israel through Moses is he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Amen. Amen. And so um, at the mountain, do we see God's glory? We see God's glory in that he was able to redeem Israel out of the hand of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, who claimed himself to be a god, and out of the hand of all other gods of Egypt. He showed himself to be more glorious than them. And so we see God's glory in his redemption of his people out of Israel. And then we see his purpose in his presence with his people. He says, he brought, he, he brought the, the Israelites to himself. He bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to God himself. And so we see God's presence right here. And then not only that, he says that, that Israel now is gonna be God's treasured possession. And so God's presence uh, is with Israel right here. Um, and so we see a little bit about uh, what it means that God is gonna be a blessing, that he's gonna bless Abraham. He's gonna be with Abraham. His presence is with Abraham. Abraham's people is God's treasure, our God's treasured possession. And so we also see the scope um, or in the reach here, too far. Um, not that you could read that anyway. <laughs> um, but we see that uh, Israel, God's people, are gonna be a kingdom of priests. And so what does a priest do? A priest is one who intercedes between God and man. A priest uh, shows people the goodness and the glory of God. The priest leads people to God. And so uh, God says that Israel here is gonna be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation on display to the world around them so that the world around them can see the goodness of God. And so right after this, right after God says these things to Israel through Moses, um, God actually comes to the mountain, sits on the mountain, and then gives the law directly to the people. And uh, we see later in Deuteronomy, the purpose of this law is ultimately that whenever the nations, whenever the people, whenever all the families of the earth see this law being lived out, that they say, what, what law is so good as this? What 
God is, is so close to the people that they would live like this. And so the purpose of the law is to display God's glory to the world around God's people. And so uh, do you hear, again, it's, it's, this promise is, is crescendoing. It's taking more shape. The blessing clearly becomes presence, God's presence with his people. And uh, the scope, the, it blesses God's blessing that he initially promised to Abraham, which is his presence with his people, blesses the nation as his nation is ultimately kingdom of priests leading others into the goodness of God. And so we see this kind of taking more and more shape. Um, and so uh, next stop that we're gonna uh, hit on is in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Um, and to kind of catch us up to the story, and we are flying through a massive amounts of scripture here. And so, um, but yeah, to catch us up in the story, so Israel went from the base of that mountain, they received the law, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they went to the land that God had promised them. They had a lot of struggles in there, but eventually God established them as a settled nation, a kingdom, and there was a king who was ruling uh, on behalf of God's rule and reign named David. And so uh, right here uh, in 2 Samuel 7, we see God come and talk to David through a prophet, Nathan. And this section is kind of long, so we have a couple of snippets here. Um, but it's all from 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 9 and 12 to 16. Um, but what, listen to what God uh, says to David through Nathan. Thus, the Lord of, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of all the earth. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so there is so much that we can unpack there that we don't have time to camp out on today. Um, but what we do have time to talk about is, do you, do you see any continuity between the, the promises that we've already seen uh, God promises people? And what are those? So first off, God says he's gonna make David a great name. He's gonna make a great name for David. He's gonna make his name great. We've, we've heard that before. We've heard that in Abram. And so uh, the funny thing is David's already a king. Like he's a king of a nation. <laughs> so it seems like his name would already be great, right? But God says to the king of Israel, I'm gonna make your name great as if it's already not great. And so we see even more clarification though. Um, Remember how in the promise to Abraham, we said God is the only one who can enable greatness. And so the same is true here. God is the only one who can make David's name great. Uh, but a part of making David's name great is he promises that David, 
this kingdom will last for forever. It will have no end. And not only that, but somebody from David's throne, David's line, his lineage, his descendants will sit on that throne as long as this kingdom is in place. And so we see God's glory and he can establish a kingdom for forever. Nobody else can do that. God can establish a kingdom for forever. And so we see this initial promise to make a great name for Abraham. And David, Abraham's descendant, we see that he is gonna sit on God's throne and David's descendants after him are gonna sit on God's throne for forever. God has made Abraham's name great by eventually establishing a kingdom that will have no end. And only God is glorious enough to do this. And so uh, as we keep going throughout uh, this promise to David, um, we see God's presence. Again, um, one key element of this promise is that David's descendant is gonna build a house for God. And so we see this fulfilled in Solomon. So Solomon is David's direct son. And so uh, Solomon, he builds a house for the Lord. And, and the purpose of this house is so that the presence of God can dwell with his people permanently. And so before this, God had, had moved around in tents. He went wherever his people were. He was with his people still. But this house, it signifies something that's, that's not a tent. It's so much more. It's permanent. It's a structure. And so this, this temple that Solomon builds is God's presence coming to dwell with his people permanently in this kingdom that will last forever. And so, um, yeah, so we see that fulfilled uh, with with Solomon. And then uh, to see God's reach as well, um, it's not immediately apparent in this passage, but whenever Solomon has finished the temple, he's praying a prayer of dedication. And in that prayer, he says, may all the families of the earth come here and may they pray and may their prayers be answered. And then uh, later, Isaiah, he calls the same house. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And there's a, a greater son of David who says that exact same thing. Um, yeah, so we see that God's reach, um, his house is a house of prayer for all peoples. And so we've, we've hit three main points throughout God's promises, and we've seen them crescendo from I will make your name great to I will establish a kingdom for forever. And your lineage will sit on that throne for forever. And we've seen, I will be a blessing, move to my presence is with you, to my presence is gonna be with you for forever. It's not gonna go anywhere in this forever kingdom. And then we've seen God's scope say the same, be the same thing. His scope is that this blessing would reach all the families of the earth, especially those rebelling against his rule and reign actively. And that's, that's true throughout every phase. We see this reach the scope of God's presence doesn't just sit and stay with his people. It goes beyond his people to all the families of the earth, to all of his creation, as he spreads his good, right, and beautiful image. And so if we remember um, the story, we worked through these promises and we see God's goodness in these promises and we see his purpose in these promises, but the people in the story don't respond how we would expect them to respond. Rather than 
seeing God's glory and recognizing it as God performs amazing act after amazing act, showing and proving his glory to his people over and over and over again and making these amazing promises that he's not going anywhere. Rather than responding uh, with appreciation or uh, awe or worship, um, they respond with rebellion. So rather than... um, Rather than being a kingdom of priests who's designed, who are designed to, to lead the nations into the presence of God, uh, they're a kingdom of people who want to make a name for them, their own selves. And so uh, they're supposed to be a holy nation, but they weren't that. And so as we read through the story, uh, we see these promises of God over and over again, but the actions of the people don't reflect the reality of these promises. We see God moving closer and closer to his people, and then we see his people pushing God further and further away. And so uh, there comes a key point in this story. If we're we're gonna continue the uh, analogy of um, listening to a a piece at an orchestra, like there's there's points throughout the piece where there's crescendos and everything's amazing. You're like, okay, this is the climax right here. Then it quiets down and then it picks back up again, and there's another crescendo, and you think, okay, this is it. And so right now, we're at a point, especially with this promise with David, where his people are like, this is it. God has promised that he's coming to dwell with us permanently. He's set up his his permanent house. He's promised us a permanent kingdom, but that's not what we see. It fades down again. It dies down. God's people are exiled because they keep rebelling against God over and over again. And so it seems in the story, even in the midst of these amazing promises and God's awesome displays of his own own glory, um, it seems that his mission has failed. But God wasn't done yet. And so uh, we come uh, to the first verse of our New Testament in Matthew 1.1. Let me flip the slide for us too. Um, well, Matthew 1, 1. And this one isn't on the slide, so I apologize. Um, but it says, yeah, the very first words that we have from Matthew, who wrote the story of Jesus' life, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And immediately right there, what, what do you notice? Immediately right there, what is Jesus associated with? Jesus is associated with this promise to David. Like there's, there's remnants, there's memories coming back of, yeah, God promised this forever kingdom. God promised that he would dwell with us forever. God promised a king that would sit on the throne for forever. And right here, Matthew says, Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So he links them to those two promises in Genesis and in 2 Samuel. But then as we continue on through uh, the first chapters of Matthew, we see more. And so we see that um, as we work through these chapters, we see that Jesus, when he was born, he had really powerful people who wanted him killed because uh, whenever he was born, the stars told Magi in another country who knew nothing about Judaism that a king of the Jews had been born and they come to see him. And so uh, Jesus' life is in danger, so they flee to Egypt. 
They're in exile in Egypt. Jesus spends years there. And then uh, whenever that threat of his life is passed, Jesus comes out of Egypt before he begins his ministry. And then not long after he comes out of Egypt, he comes to John the Baptist at the Jordan and he's baptized by John. And so John the Baptist And we have also a gospel that was written by John the Apostle. And so John the Apostle, what he describes that happens here at this baptism, he says the heavens are ripped open. And God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. They're ripped open just like the Red Sea was ripped open. And people walked on the dry ground in the baptism of Israel. And then Jesus, right after that, um, Mark says that he was kicked out into the wilderness. And so Jesus walks in the wilderness for 40 days, where then he's gonna be visited by a familiar character that we know from the fall, the serpent. And so in in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by the serpent just as Adam was. But where Adam failed, Jesus does not. And right after that, after finally defeating the serpent, Jesus comes and the first thing that he says is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he calls his first people to himself into his presence. And then he goes up to a mountain and he sits down. And so you have to see the similarities here. Um, So Jesus has already been associated with Abraham and with David. And now he's associated with the Exodus. And now he's on top of a mountain. Up until this point of the story, who does Jesus resemble? He resembles Israel, God's people, who were brought out of Egypt, who were led through the Red Sea in their baptism, and who were given the law, who wandered in the wilderness and they were given the law. But now something changes. Jesus sits down at the top of the mountain to speak to the crowds. Now Jesus resembles someone else. Who does he resemble? He resembles God himself. Why can Jesus do this? Why can he sit down at the top of the mountain? And also, what he's about to say from the top of the mountain is gonna be the most profound clarification of the intent of the law that we have in all of our scripture. He's gonna, with surgical precision, turn everything that the people have believed about the law on its head. And he says, the law isn't just about the end action. It's not about the, the end result of what you do. You can look fine on the outside, but not on the inside. The law is about the heart and the motive, not the action. And so that's what Jesus says from the top of the mountain. He clarifies the law just as the people were given the law by God. So why can Jesus sit on top of the mountain? Jesus can sit on top of the mountain because he is glorious. And he is glorious because he has defeated the serpent. No one else has done that. And so Adam, who was in the garden, who had everything he needed in the presence of God, was tempted and defeated by the serpent. But Jesus, in the desert, who had nothing, defeated the serpent in the wilderness. And so we also see in this story, we see Jesus calling people to himself. 
he calls his first disciples to follow him. And what that means, it's, it's not just like you would follow somebody on Instagram or Twitter. This isn't, I keep tabs on you. I know what you're doing. This is, I walk with you. I eat where you eat, when you eat, what you eat. I sleep when you sleep, where you sleep. Everywhere you go, I go. So I'm learning and, and living your life with you. And so this is a very intimate relationship that Jesus is calling this, his first followers into. He's calling them into his presence. And so flipping us back to Exodus, do you remember what God said to his people right before he gave them the law? He said, you are a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. So listen to what Jesus says from the mountain right here. This is from Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so right before Jesus clarifies the law, what does he say? He affirms, you're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. You're a light on a hill. So that when the people see the good works, they may glorify the good God who's in heaven, which is the exact same purpose of the law that we saw back in Deuteronomy. And so God's mission here in Jesus, is it different? It's exactly the same, but it's escalated. It's it's effective for the first time. So we see God's promises that are pointing to something else. And now finally we're beginning to see what those promises are pointing to. For the first time, we see the serpent on his heels, if he had him, on his tail, I guess. Um, and so for the first time, the, reverse, the, rever the effects of the curse are beginning to be reversed as Jesus defeats the serpent in the wilderness. And so with Jesus living out this story, with Jesus identifying as the son of David, the son of Abraham, as him walking through the same narrative as, as Israel did in coming out of Egypt, he's identifying with the same mission. This is the same mission that God has come to accomplish. It's continual, it's constant, and it's unstoppable. And Jesus has come to fulfill it. And so one key difference, though, is in these promises, in the Old Covenant, God made himself known through Israel, through his people. They were the kingdom of priests. But now, God makes himself known through one man, through Jesus. And also, Jesus, being himself the Redeemer, Jesus, he's not, he's not only a messenger of God's glory. He's the embodiment of that glory. He can sit down at the top of that mountain and clarify the law of the new covenant. And so um, we have one other passage that I think is super significant. Um, Paul helps us understand uh, the, the meaning of redemption in 2 Corinthians 5. And so uh, we're gonna turn there. And so ultimately, um, the, because of our rebellion against God's purpose, against God's mission, the only way for us 
to be reconciled into God's presence is for one who is not rebelled, for one who has no sin, to atone for our rebellion, to make reparations for our sin. In the old covenant, this was accomplished by, the, by a sacrificial lamb, a literal lamb was sacrificed to make atonement for, for sins and rebellion of the people. In the new covenant, Jesus is the only human to never sin, to never rebel against God's mission. He is that lamb. And so uh, this is another kind of uh, longer passage. And so we have a couple of different snippets, but this is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15, and then 17 to 21. So uh, follow along with me. We've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all those, or for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was calling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so I want to spend a second talking about that last sentence there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can't be in God's presence because we have all rejected God's mission. I have rebelled against God's mission. I have sinned against him. And so I cannot draw near to God if that stays constant. The only way for our sin to be reconciled is from someone, for someone else to take it from us. And I cannot give my sin to any one of you and you cannot give your sin to me because I have my own sin that I'm accountable for and so do you. The only way for our sin to be reconciled is for someone without sin to take it from us. And so Jesus, the only one not to reject God's mission, the only one in the history of humanity to have no sin, became sin for us so that we might then become righteousness. This is called the great exchange. And this is the only way we can actually come into the presence of God. And Jesus accomplished that. And so, um, yeah, that there is no thing that's more glorious than that. That he who had no sin would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. And so do you see God's mission here? God's mission here should be crystal clear. 
This is full crescendo. This is where you're in that seat, you're listening to the orchestra, and you know, oh, this is it, because this is good. It does not get any better than this. And so we see God's glory in that he died. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He died and was raised to new life. What greater display of glory is there than that? And we see also his presence. We see that he reconciled us to himself. So then we also now have the ministry of reconciliation. And so uh, we see um, God's reach in that having been reconciled to God, he gives his people the ministry of reconciliation, which is literally Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so then God's people, as Christ's ambassadors, can implore friends, families, neighbors, um, whoever, to be reconciled to Christ, to be reconciled to God, as Paul says here. And so God's mission here, it's the same. But it's crystal clear here. And... Um, Regarding Jesus uh, becoming sin for us, um, I just wanted to highlight that Jesus living a sinless life and dying a death, if that stands by itself, that is not just. Jesus is the only person to live in this world to not deserve the death that he died. And so the only way to make Jesus' death just is that if his death is treated. And so the only way for Jesus' sinless death to be just, to be right, is that if his, his sinless death is traded for the death of sinful people. Therefore, we can actually be in the presence of God because now we're not rebels. Because now we're not uh, people who reject his mission. Now we are righteous in Christ because he traded his life for us. And so um, we're redeemed into the presence of God. Um, we have one more text here. Uh, but we're also redeemed into this kingdom. Remember we said the first thing that Jesus said when he came out of the wilderness is the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we see him uh, provide more and more clarity of, on this kingdom throughout the gospels. He speaks in parables. He clarifies it with illustrations. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. Um, but, and we don't have time to unpack the kingdom of God. But um, we see that uh, Jesus, he calls us into his kingdom. He redeems us into his kingdom. And so uh, right before he raises from the dead to take his seat at God's right hand, he leaves his followers with some final parting instructions. Um, and in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, um, I'm gonna put the text up here. I'm gonna try to. One more? There we go. Um, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so when we talk about mission, this is often the text that we immediately gravitate to, and that's not wrong. That's because God's mission here is 
crystal clear. Jesus is about to take his, his rightful place at God's right hand in the throne room of heaven. And so uh, the reason why, though, I think we tend to gravitate and latch onto this passage is because we see a clear command for us to go, to make disciples, to teach, to baptize. And so those are all good things, but I don't want, that, don't want us to miss what else is going on here. So we see in this, we see God's glory Maybe. <laughs> we see his glory in that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. When God created the world, he gave authority of the earth to Adam to care for it, to work it. But that authority was lost when he rebelled against God's rightful rule and reign. But here, Jesus in his resurrected body has authority not only of the earth, but also of the heavens. And then we see his presence. He says he is with us to the end of the age. The resurrected Jesus is with his people to the end of the age. Amen. Remember the promise that God promised to David. I will set up my permanent dwelling place with you. I will establish your kingdom for forever. Jesus now rules and reigns in David's line on God's rightful throne. And he is now with us forever in that temple that he built that he called himself. God has fulfilled his promise in his kingdom. And then we see the reach of that. This isn't a presence for us to sit on and hoard. This ultimately goes beyond the people of God. God's people make disciples of all nations. And so all the families ultimately are blessed in Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. Amen. And so um, we've been throughout, we've covered massive chunks of scripture and we could have taken a deep dive into each one of these sections and it's kind of painful to move this quickly, but I hope we've been able to see that throughout this story, God has one consistent purpose that's the same. It doesn't change. And there's also no stopping it. Despite how bad things might get, there's no stopping God's mission to reconcile his people to himself. Amen. And then reconcile the nations also to himself. God is still working in this kingdom right now, using those who are in his kingdom to spread his good, right, and beautiful image throughout creation, to introduce those who do not know him to his new kingdom, where we are righteous because we have his life in place of our own. And so uh, we see that God's mission is that God's glory dwells with his people who in turn spread that glory to all the families of the earth. And we see that throughout all the acts of scripture. Um, and so before we close, what does that mean? What's the significance of all of this for us today? What's that mean for, for you and me individually as we live our lives and in, in the crazy 2022, as things continue to get crazier. Um, what does it mean as we go to work? What does it mean as we see our neighbors? What does it mean as we see our family? Um, what does this mission mean? Then what does it mean for us as a church? Living in this new kingdom reality as the people of God collectively, what does it mean for us? And so we're gonna take, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna take uh, a, a Sunday morning to actually explore and dive into this question a little deeper um, as we consider 
what God's mission means for us specifically as a church, Emmaus. Um, but one thing first and foremost is when we think of God's mission, what do we, what's our, what's like, play the game, first thought in your head. When I say God's mission, you say what? I say do. That's the first word that pops into my mind is, is do. What's happening? What is God doing? How is God using me? How is God using our church? It's do. And I think because of that, that's not wrong because God is using his church. God is using individuals. But I think what I do with that is I overlook the two foundational pillars of God's mission that we see throughout all of scripture. I miss, A, that God is glorious, that he is good, that he is right, that he is beautiful. I miss that. And second, I miss that God's purpose of, of mission is to call us to be in his presence. God's purpose of mission is calling me to be in his presence. God's purpose of mission is calling you to be in his presence, to be with him. And we have Jesus with us in the spirit. And that's beautiful and that's glorious. And anything that we, any endeavor, any missional venture that we take that doesn't consider first God's glory and second, his very real and permanent presence with us, then our mission is not God's mission. It becomes something else altogether. And so God's mission is first and foremost that I would see and recognize his glorious beauty. Why? Because that's the only thing that is good. And so when I consider mission, might the most missional thing that I can do is seek to draw nearer to God. Do we think of mission that way? Do we aim first to be astounded in God's glory, to marinate in his presence, and to ask that for any part that we might play in his mission, to flow from our closeness with God who's given us access to him? I think most often I don't think of mission that way. I think of mission as, as, as my efforts. How can I make my efforts partner with God? But mission is about his glorious presence dwelling within me, causing me to then spread his good, right, and beautiful image to those around me, to those who don't know him and to those who do. And so thanks be to God that his purpose throughout history has continually been that his people would see and experience his glory. And out of that, and out of experiencing his glory and being united in his presence, out of that, to then expand the reach of his good, right, and beautiful character to all the families of the earth. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you give us such a beautiful story. Only you weave such a story together. Only you can testify to your glory in the way that this story does. God, I pray that we would be changed by that story. 
I pray that we would see that story as, as good and as uh, glorious and as right and as beautiful. And I, I pray that we would see your mission and that we would gravitate towards that. And I pray uh, that we would first seek your glory and seek that you would dwell among us, dwell within us as you promised that you do in the spirit. I'm thankful that you've sent the spirit, that, you, that we now have this eternal presence with you in Christ. I pray that you would make that more and more and more real to us every day. And God, as we, pray, as we, as we continue to struggle with uh, the lingering effects of sin, while we still wait on uh, your, your new creation, things we didn't get to talk about today, while we wait on the one day reality where there will be no more sin, I pray that whenever we fall short, that you would remind us of the great exchange, that you would remind us that you became sin for our sake so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I pray that you would dwell within us and that you would use us to spread your good, right, and beautiful image to those around us, to those in our neighborhoods, to those who we share workspaces with, whether that's physically or virtually, um, and uh, with our family members. Um, I pray that uh, your glory and your image would be spread out of, an, out of an overflowing presence with your people, with us. In your name we pray, amen.